Let's talk just very briefly about some common illustrations of the Trinity. And I got to tell you right off the bat that they're all bad. Okay? The triple point of water, for those of you who have studied chemistry or physics, is sometimes used as an illustration because water can simultaneously exist as vapor, liquid, and solid at the same temperature and pressure. At one temperature and pressure, which is called the triple point. Okay? It seems to illustrate something about the Trinity. We've got three things that share, and share one essence, but in reality, this illustrates modalism, not the Trinity. Because you can change liquid water into vapor or into ice. Okay? There are no, th these, these may be three distinct forms of water that can exist at the same point, but you can turn, you can't turn the Son into the Holy Spirit, or turn the Holy Spirit into the Father, or turn the Father into the Son. But you can turn ice into water, and you can turn water into water vapor. So this is really an illustration of modalism, not the Trinity. Okay? Some people have talked about the Son, its light, and its power. Well, again, if you know about physics, you know that these things do not share the same essence. Okay? The sun is in outer space. Its light flies through space, and when that light impacts something, it heats that something. Now, back in the days when people thought that light somehow was connected to the source, this sort of made sense. But we know that if you go outside with your flashlight and turn it on and point it up in the sky and then turn it off, a little slug of light continues to fly forever into outer space even after you turn the light out. Okay? So the three things don't even share one essence. So that doesn't work. Now some people have said a tree illustrates the Trinity. Well, the parts of the tree do share the same essence but they are also distinguishable and separable in the sense that you can cut them into pieces and they can have independent existence. And that's not true of the members of the Trinity. Um, the human family. Some people will say, well, you can have the father, the mother, and the child. Well, that sounds kind of like Roman Catholic theology, doesn't it? Um, it's helpful in illustrating three persons sharing one nature, but it doesn't illustrate three persons sharing one essence, as we said earlier. Okay? Personally, I think these things do more damage than they do good. And if you're trying to share the doctrine of the Trinity with someone who didn't understand it, I wouldn't go here. Okay? I think it just clouds the issue. I think really the best way to do it is to do what we just did. Now, one of the things that we didn't do in our exploration of evidence for the Trinity is to look at the evidence in the New Testament for the fact that the Son has all the attributes of deity, the Holy Spirit has all the attributes of deity, the Father has all the attributes of deity, and put that together with the fact that each one is said to execute divine functions, you know, they all plan, they all carry out actions, they all have the capability to forgive, 
those kinds of things. You can see there's a whole lot of evidence to say that all three persons of the Trinity really are God. So I would put that together with what we saw earlier. Um, I have something here on a history of the denials of the Trinity, but we've really looked at that already, and I'm going to skip it. Okay? Let's, let's move on to our discussion of soteriology. Okay? Let me get this up here. Now, by the way, you should have, I believe, one set of notes for ST2, but I apologize. The heading at the top of the page says ST1. It says theology proper, but it says ST1. Do you all have that one? And then you should have a set of notes on anthropology. That's for ST4. And hamartiology for ST4. And we're working through those anthropology and hamartiology notes. Do you remember what homardiology means? The study of sin. sin. What a great topic. Okay. Now, last week we were talking about the consequences of the fall, and we mentioned the actual consequences, but we need to take a closer look at them. Okay, so I'm just picking up where we were last week. The first consequence of the fall is total, total depravity. And we would have to argue from what we see in Scripture, I think, that the fall caused changes in the nature of Adam and Eve that they passed on to us. I would go even farther. I would say that when Adam and Eve sinned, God changed them. Okay? He changed their nature. Now, Romans 5.19 says that we were made sinners because of Adam's sin. Now, this means that sin affects every part of our character, making us fundamentally powerless to do right. It doesn't mean that everything that we do is bad. It means that every aspect of our personalities is tainted by sin. Okay? Total depravity does not mean that we're all Adolf Hitler. But it does mean that we are flawed in the same ways that Adolf Hitler was flawed. Okay, Dr. Pentecost, who many of you have heard speak, describes total depravity like this. It has to do not with man's estimation of man, but rather with God's estimation of man. He says, the creature is measured by the creator and found wanting. Now remember, who made us? God made us, and he made us to do what? To worship him. Okay, in, the, in terms of Genesis chapter 1, he made us to, okay, to glorify him. There's particular roles he gave in Genesis chapter 1, right? He said, let us make man, okay, that's right, to create, to relate, and to dominate, okay, those are the functions that he created us for, and then he said, let us create man in our image, and we said that there are two ways in which we we bear God's image, right? The essential image, what we are, we're beings with intellect, emotion, and will, like God, and the functional essence that has to do with what we do. We create, we relate, and we dominate. Okay? Now, what the doctrine of total depravity is basically saying is that the image of God in every aspect has been marred by sin. 
Okay? We don't do any of the things that we were supposed to do without failing, and we, we are not any of the things that we are supposed to be without corruption. Our minds are corrupted, our wills are corrupted, our emotions are corrupted. Okay? Now, in other words, the way Dr. P is putting it, although our behavior is not as bad as it could be, at least it's not always as bad as it could be, our standing before God is as bad as it could be because we are not fulfilling the function for which he created us. Okay, the second actual consequence of the fall is death. Now, death came to the race through Adam and Eve. And when God said in Genesis 2, don't eat the fruit of that tree or you will die, he wasn't lying. Adam and Eve really did die. Now, it wasn't all immediately obvious. Scripture uses the term death in three different ways. Did we go over this last week? Yeah. We did. Okay, and I'm going to go through this quickly. Spiritual death, physical death, and second death. Vicki, you're shaking your head. Oh, you weren't here. Okay, well, let me, let me hit it quickly, okay? The concept of death in Scripture is separation, not annihilation, not cessation. Spiritual death is separation from God, the inability to have a relationship with him. We're all born spiritually dead. Physical death is separation of your immaterial part, your soul slash spirit, from your body. We all know that. And the second death is what happens when a person who dies unsaved is judged by God and sent to the lake of fire. This hasn't happened to anybody yet, but it will happen to every person who dies unsaved. Those are the three kinds of death mentioned in Scripture. Okay? Now, the third consequence of the fall is what Luther called the bondage of the will. Now, here's a question. Do you think that the fall rendered men incapable of pleasing God, or did it really, did it just reduce our capability and inclination to do so? Okay, Tommy says incapable, because he's a good Calvinist. Yay. Okay, let's look at three ways this question has been answered. Pelagius said that Adam was created holy, he was neither uh, neutral, he was neither holy nor sinful. Now, I think that's correct. But he said the sin of Adam affected him alone. Every human being who has been born as his descendant is born neutral as Adam was. Pelagius said that people are capable of living free of sin if they choose to, even without knowing Christ or the help of the Holy Spirit. Gail's back there giving me one of those long, <laughs> no way. Okay? This makes our skin crawl, doesn't it? He says there's no relationship between acts of sin and a hereditary principle. We don't, the fact that we sin has nothing to do with what we get from our parents. He says there were people on earth without sin before Christ came, and he said men can turn from evil to good without God's help. Okay. Now, this flies in the face of experience as well as scripture. Now, a second way of answering this question. Okay, Augustine originally agreed with Pelagius 
But he changed his mind after studying scripture, and he came to the conclusion that all people are born spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, that's supposed to say 1 to 9, says. He concluded that no one seeks after God on his own. That's what Romans chapter 3 says. He concluded that before salvation, we are slaves to sin. Okay? We really don't have any choice but to sin. Now, we may at times be able to hold off sinning, but there's no possibility that we won't ever fail to hold it off. We will sin. He argued that before the Spirit worked, no one could hear the message of salvation, I should say, and respond to it. All right? Our wills are actually bound so much by sin that unless the Holy Spirit assists us in a way that we cannot do ourselves, even if we hear the gospel, we will not respond. Okay? And you can see that doctrine particularly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers lest they hear the gospel and believe. And every one of us was like that once. Okay? But by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit chose to remove the blindness and let us see what was in front of our faces all along, which is the evidence of the existence of God and then the truth of the gospel when it was presented to us. Okay? And Augustine argued that the consequences that we're talking about reflect both the seminal and federal headship of Adam over the race. Now, we'll talk about seminal and federal headship in just a moment, so sit tight on that. Okay? Have any of you heard those terms? Okay, a few of you had. Good. All right. Now, the legal consequences of the fall. We just looked at the actual consequences. Okay, legally, Adam's sin was imputed to the whole race. That's what Romans chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 argues. It says that Adam's sin was imputed to the whole race. God said, because Adam sinned, I count all of his descendants guilty. Now, that's not all that this says. Romans 5 also says that when Adam sinned, he made us guilty. So we are guilty by designation, if you will, and we're guilty by nature. And you'll see how that comes from federal and seminal headship in a little, little while. Legally, we all came under the wrath of God. And Romans chapter 1 argues that all you have to do is look out the window and you can see that there's a creator God who is powerful and is eternal. And then Paul goes on to argue that the fact that we refuse to acknowledge him is evidence of our guilt and it brings us under God's wrath. And then, legally, I know I put this under actual, but I think it's also legal because God chose to do it this way. Death came to the race as a penalty for sin as well as through the hereditary link to Adam. Now, sometimes it's hard to separate these things. And if I haven't separated them in the best way, forgive me. Okay, are you with me so far? Okay. Now, can you all in the back read this? Okay, this is a very, very important set of information. Okay? We've got the Pelagian view that we just looked at, the Arminian view, 
the federal headship view and the seminal headship view. I believe this is in your notes, pretty much in this form. Okay? Now, what I'm really interested in is what Romans 5.12 means. And we're going to look at how each of these views understands Romans 5.12. Now, let's read that before we do it. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one, man's, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men now catch the last phrase because it takes you by surprise because all sinned okay you don't expect him to say that but he says it now people have argued about the meaning of that last phrase when it says all sin okay now Pelagius said that Romans 5.12 isn't saying anything about you and me and some connection with Adam. Pelagius argued that people incur death when they sin after Adam's example. Adam is just the poster boy for sin. And if you manage to get through your life without ever sinning, you would never come under God's condemnation. Okay? Pelagius said that Adam's sin affected Adam alone. He said, no one is affected by Adam's sin except Adam. All right? Who holds to this view? Well, some Unitarians do. Okay? Most Unitarians don't even care about sin anymore. It's not even on the page. Okay? All right. Now, Arminians look at this same verse, particularly that phrase that said, because all sin, and they say all people consent to Adam's sin by sinning. In other words, when they follow Adam's example, they're basically saying, well, I don't want to obey God any more than Adam did. Adam was right to disobey God, and I think it's okay for me to disobey God. And they would say, only after they have sinned, after Adam's example, is Adam's sin imputed to them. Now, that sounds kind of goofy, doesn't it? Why would God have to impute Adam's sin to them after they had already sinned? Right? They're already guilty. Why do they need Adam's guilt? They've got enough guilt to their own. But this is the way Arminians would typically argue. They would say Adam's sin partially affected humanity, but coming over here, they would say that human depravity is not total. Okay? Humanity receives a corrupt nature but they don't receive guilt from Adam. That's why they say it's only after you sin that Adam's sin is imputed to you. Question? No? Okay. And they would say that people are capable of living sinlessly. All right? That's a standard Arminian position. <clears throat> this position is held by many Methodists, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, and holiness groups. Okay? Now, please understand that this, there probably are broader approaches to this represented by some of these people. Okay? I'm not trying to accuse every Methodist of holding exactly this view, but this is kind of where the theological spectrum lies. Okay? Let me see if I can focus that a little bit. Okay, 
Now we come down to these two interesting terms, federal headship and seminal headship. Now when we're talking about this concept of headship, we're talking about how Adam, as the head of the human race, affects the race. Okay? Now, the idea of federal headship comes from the idea of representation. This idea is based on the idea that legally, in the sight of God, Adam represents the race. Seminal headship comes from the word seed, like semen. Okay? And the idea here is that the human race comes genetically from Adam, so he is the genetic head of the race. Okay? Here he is the legal representation, representative of the race, federally. Seminally, he is the genetic head of the race. We are all his descendants. Now, what I'm going to show you here, please don't make the mistake of thinking that you can't hold both of these. Okay? These are expressing different aspects of what I think Scripture teaches. All right? Okay, according to the federal headship view, when Romans 5.12 said that everybody sinned in Adam, it says that sin is legally imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. Because Adam is our representative. When he sinned, that sin was put on our account. It's kind of like the people who were calling for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. And Pilate says, what do you want him for? And they say, crucify Jesus. And he says, why do you want to do that? And they say, his blood be on us and on our children. Okay? Similar idea. Adam's sin is on Adam's children, and that's every one of us. Okay? The federal headship view would say that Adam was the only one who sinned, but the whole race is affected. Okay? When Adam sinned, there was nobody else participating in it except Eve, who isn't considered to be responsible for the fall of the race. Okay? They would say that human depravity is total. Every part of us is corrupted and tainted by sin, and sin and guilt are both imputed to us. Okay? Now, when I say that sin is imputed to us, it's basically God saying, because you are in Adam, I consider you to be sinful by nature. And I consider you responsible for the action of Adam. Now, who holds this view? Presbyterians, other covenant theology groups. Okay, Very common view. And I believe it is true. But I believe more is true. Okay? Now, the seminal headship view says that sin is legally imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. Looks just the same, doesn't it? Here is where the difference is. They, those who hold the seminal headship view would say that when it says in Romans 5.12, because all sinned, humanity sinned in Adam. We participated in in Adam's sin. Okay? We were in Adam when he sinned. Because we were there genetically. Now this leads to a very interesting question. Did you ever wonder where your children's souls come from? Bob. Uh, I'm sorry. When you're saying when you're saying uh, 
we were in him genetically. Uh-huh. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't a term. Sure. When these ideas were coming being come up with, that wasn't okay. They they wouldn't they, they wouldn't they wouldn't use the term genetically. Okay. But they would. The, the idea of seminal headship is still a genetic concept. Okay. Okay. Now this is very like what happens in Hebrew chapter six. Yes, sir. Uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament it says when he was still yet in his father's loins. Good. Mm-hmm. Good. There's a perfect illustration of it, right? Um, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, there's an argument made in the book of Hebrews that says all the descendants of Abraham participated in that act of paying tithes. Okay? It's a similar idea. Okay. Now, this is not the way we think. Okay? But apparently it is the way God thinks, and we'll see why it's important in a minute. Okay? Now, those who hold the seminal headship view have exactly the same response to human depravity. We believe it's total. We believe that Adam's sin and his guilt are imputed to us. Who holds these views? The reformers and later Calvinists. Okay. Now, obviously, there's some overlap here. Now, I personally think that both of these are true. And I think both of them are taught by Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. How many of you were in that class I taught a few months ago about Romans 5, 12 to 21? Remember we went through this? And remember how it's tough going? Okay? That's why I'm not going to try to do it right here. But I believe the evidence is there. Okay? Now, having said this, let me just give you a sneak preview. Angela. Okay, that's the next slide. Great question. Okay, that's the next slide. And we'll get to that. It's very interesting. Um, We look at both federal headship and seminal headship, and we say, it ain't fair. Why should the sins of my ancestor be laid on me legally? Okay? Why should the fact that he sinned lead to me having a corrupt nature? Well, that's harder to argue with, right? If if one of your parents has AIDS and you're born, born with AIDS, you may say it's a raw deal, but you understand how that happens. Okay? But you look at these two and you say, this doesn't seem right. Adam screwed up and I'm left with the mess. Okay? Well, that is true. But if it were not true that there was a precedent for one man's sin to make the entire race guilty, okay, it would not be possible for one man's righteous act to make many people righteous again. Okay? So what seems like the lousiest deal in the universe is actually the most wonderful thing. Okay? If we didn't go back to a common head of the race, Adam, Christ couldn't die for everybody. Okay? It has to be that way. And by the way, that's one of the reasons, although most people aren't aware of it, why the theory of evolution is a direct attack on the biblical doctrine of soteriology. Okay? And and by the way, just in passing, and some of you have heard me say this before, There doesn't seem to be any evidence that the fallen angels will ever be saved, right? 
There's nothing in the scriptures to suggest that. One of the reasons I think that they can't be saved is that they are not a race. As far as we know, they are each created individually. They don't reproduce. They have no head. So if the Holy Spirit were to become incarnate as an angel in order to die for the sins of the angels, he could only save one. Because there's no legal precedent taking them all back to one person. Isn't that fascinating? Okay? Now, that's just my idea. I don't know if you'll ever find that in a theology book. But. Okay. Great question. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about the sin of Eve and the sin of Adam. And interestingly, when it says that women are not allowed to exercise authority over men or to teach men, it says that that's because Eve was deceived. But nowhere does it ever say that Eve is responsible for the sin of the human race. And that's because before the fall, in God's designed form of functional subordination, man was on top. Okay, And when Adam stood there and listened to Eve and the snake have their conversation, and she took a bite and then handed it to him, he is held responsible. Okay? It's the old thing, the buck stops at the top. Right? But the thing, when you were saying about when Christ came and saved everyone that saved since Adam, mm. including her, no there. Well, okay, she, she's sort of a special case, except that she came from him. But, but she came out of him before the fall. So I, I think you're right. I think she is a special case. Yes, sir? Since she was made from his rib, she would have his DNA. She would have his DNA. But see, the interesting thing is they were separated before the fall. And when God zapped them and changed their nature and sort of made them sinners, if you want to say it that way, I think he had to do it separately. Now, the other, see, there is a problem with explaining Eve's relationship to the sin of Adam. But there's no problem explaining the relationship of any of their descendants because all of their descendants are descendants of Adam as well as descendants of Eve. Okay? That is a fascinating question. I never thought about it. Angela, did you have your hand up? No. Okay. Yes. Are you done with that slide? Yes. I want to ask something before we go to the next one. Okay. Um, I'm not trying to throw Tommy Scalabism under the bus, but okay. if you look at Hebrews 11, 5, and 6, yes. verses 5 and 6, okay. how would you explain that? How would you reconcile that with what you said about man being incapable of pleasing God? Oh, okay, sure. Um, man in his fallen state, without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work, of the Holy Spirit and the Word is unable to please God. But, I, you know, I'd go to John chapter 15 where Jesus says, Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. It's only in the context of a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ that believers are capable of pleasing God. Okay? But unregenerate man in his depraved and unsaved state is never capable of pleasing God. So you weren't including people as believers? No, 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 no. Okay. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. That's a good clarification, though. Okay. I know that this is a 
Okay. And woman. Sure. But the salvationist man is only for. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. But why is there that asymmetry, right? Yeah. Okay. Great question. Okay. If you read Romans 5 12 to 21, you won't find the word all ever applied in the case of how Christ's righteousness benefits the saved. You'll find all applied in the case of how Adam's sin affects the race, but not in the case of how Christ's righteousness affects the race. Okay? What Christ did was make it possible for all to be saved, but in God's plan for any individual to be saved, they must respond to him and the offer of the gospel. And that gets back to the idea that reconciliation always requires two parties to respond. You've seen this thing before? At the fall, here's man and God, and they're face-to-face, -face and they're in fellowship. Okay? Man turns away from God in sin, and God has no choice but to turn away from man. And Christ comes along and dies for men's sins, and according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, that's God turning back, okay? But then Paul goes on and he says, in our preaching, we preach, be reconciled to God. And we ask each individual to do this, okay? So, because of sin, we're all born facing away from God, even though because of the work of Christ, he's ready for us to turn to him in faith. But unless we turn to him in faith, we remain alienated. You know, it's like if you've got a long-lost sister or something you haven't been talking to, and she wants to talk to you, and you say, well, I'm not going to talk to you until you decide to talk to her. The relationship remains severed, even though she's willing. Does that make sense? Why? Well, okay. No, no, no. You're, you're not being flippant at all. It, 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 it's a it's a fascinating question. Um, I, he, he made all men to be in Adam. Well, I'll tell I'll tell you what the answer is, and I'll try not to upset you. But I think this is what Scripture teaches. I think God is glorified in the damnation of the damned as well as in the salvation of the saved. And I think that's the answer to the question. Clayton, you had a question. Sure. And we just discussed how depraved we are. Yes. And I believe that the only reason that we don't look like Hitler is because of God's grace. Sure. So, with what part of that depraved, wicked part are we turning to God with? Okay. I believe the answer of Scripture is that no part of us ever turns to God apart from the aid of His Holy Spirit. This would be what theologians call effectual calling. Yeah, so what I'm trying to say is, are you saying that basically, um, I, I personally think that we have to be regenerated. We have to have a regenerate heart like Ezekiel talks about in chapter 36. Before we can respond? Before we can respond. <coughs> okay. 
We will deal with that later, okay? But let me, let me hit you very quickly with my understanding of it at this point. I believe that regeneration logically but not chronologically precedes faith, okay? I believe that the Holy Spirit must work in our hearts to enable us to see our need and to comprehend the gospel. Having done that, we immediately respond. There's, no, there, there's never a case of someone who has been spiritually enlightened by the Spirit but remains in an unsaved state. It always follows, and it always follows immediately. Because the nature must be changed yeah. to, to even have, want to have anything to do with I, that. I think that's the evidence of Scripture. Now, Arminians would say that that's not true. Okay, That's why they go back here. They would say that depravity is not total. We are corrupt, but not totally unable to respond to God. Okay, And Arminians would say, this is the logical conclusion from the passages of Scripture that call men to believe. Why would you call somebody to believe who isn't capable of believing? And they would say... If God has to zap you with the Holy Spirit before you're going to believe, why bother calling you? When he zaps you, you're going to believe anyway. And I think the answer to that, because I'm not here, I'm down here, is that God has foreordained not only the results, but the means by which that result will be achieved. And he has given us the dignity to participate in that chain of causes. You know, when one of us shares the gospel with somebody else, what are we doing? We're acting as God's agent in a chain of causes that's going to lead to a glorious thing, which is the salvation of a person. Okay? We, we will get to that issue in, in more depth. Uh, culturally, or uh, I guess it's culturally, uh, not just the Methodists, but uh, the world in general, mm-hmm. say, there's a little bit of good in everything. Absolutely. And I try to Absolutely. And, and, and they're probably more up here, okay? Sort of in this vague area, you know. Some would recognize that we have a tendency to do wrong, but most of them would sort of be more in this direction.